Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is May 1st, 2014, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Broken Arms, Diagnosing Rotator Cuff Disease. The guest skeptic for today is Dagny Kane Haas, physiotherapist extraordinaire. Welcome to the SGM, Dagny. Thank you. It's great to have you on the show. Now, currently, you have your degree in physiotherapy, but I understand you're getting your master's in physiotherapy, but it's not called a master's of physiotherapy. It's called a master's of clinical science and manipulative therapy. That sounds somewhat evil. (laughs) Well, for full disclosure... I should let the listeners know that Dagny was my physiotherapist when I tore my ACL a few years ago. So Dagny, was I a good patient? Hmm. Well, that doctor, all I can say is doctors don't always make the best patients. It is true. And male doctors are probably even worse. So, hey, we like to start these shows with a case. Can you give us a case scenario of someone that you would see in your physiotherapy clinic with a shoulder issue? Sure. Oftentimes, we're seeing some somebody in their age of 40, in their 40s or 50s, that has been doing a job for a number of years or a recreational sport or any kind of sport, and will have shoulder pain probably once or twice before, but it's gone away on its own. But all of a sudden, it seems to be getting worse. So the pain is substantial, and it may limit some of his functioning and even sleep. So what's the question then for today's podcast, Agni? Does this patient with shoulder pain have rotator cuff disease? Okay, so just some background information. Shoulder pain is the third most common cause of musculoskeletal reasons for seeking medical attention. And Dagny, I can't say this number without putting my finger to the corner of my mouth. There are 4.5 million visits per year in the U.S. for this type of injury. And rotator cuff disease is the most common cause of those shoulder pains. And it can have a big impact on the quality of life, especially if it's the dominant arm. And the majority of these conditions are treated medically. And when I say medically, I'm including, of course, physiotherapy with only a few requiring surgery. So you see people like this in your clinic? Certainly. We see a number of these on a daily basis. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast, not just because you're the physiotherapist extraordinaire, but the physiotherapists I've had contact with have had a really good handle on the anatomy and physiology of the musculoskeletal system. And so I was wondering if you could review the anatomy of the rotator cuff using your words to paint a a visual picture because of course this is a audio podcast so can you paint a visual picture of the bones the muscles and the nerves because when it comes to me all I'm thinking of is the mnemonic sits or supraspinatus infraspinatus teres minor and subscapularis you've got to take us a bit further Dagny well I think it's important to remember that there are three bones that make up the shoulder. You have the clavicle, which attaches to the shoulder blade or the scapula. Uh, 
those two bones making up the acromioclavicular joint. You're not just dumbing this down by saying scapula and shoulder blade for me, are you? Never. Never. You also have the humerus bone, which, uh, of course, is your arm bone, your upper arm bone. You noticed my attempt at humor just before you said that, didn't you? (laughs) On top of those bones, keeping everything together, you do have the rotator cuff muscles, which are the sits muscles. On top of those sits muscles, you also have the long head of the bicep, which attaches in the front, which I often think is... Uh, missed by a lot of professionals and it is part of the rotator cuff and is often injured with uh, rotator cuff injuries so it's important to recognize that muscle it attaches up into the actual labrum and capsule and is important for shoulder flexion so i'm just going to stop you there that's a little pearl i mean you know i'm always thinking rotator cuff and I'm thinking sits, and you're saying that the, the bicep tendon and the bicep muscle does play a role within the shoulder for the motions we're going to be talking about and the injuries we're going to be talking about. So don't forget that bicep and bicep tendon. Exactly. Yes, it's often associated with a rotator cuff tear, and sometimes the snapping that you will feel in the actual shoulder with some movements can be that actual tendon slipping and sliding around um, on the humerus due to uh, injury or tendonitis, uh, some kind of tendinopathy. So it's a very important muscle uh, and tendon to remember to assess. Well, I think we'll remember it now. I, I just I wanted to highlight that quickly. But take us back then to the supraspinatus. What does it do and what nerve controls it? Okay, so the supraspinatus is the uh, the muscle that helps to abduct the arm. Oh, abduct? A-B-duct. A-B-duct. Okay. So it helps to lift your arm uh, to the side, and it's also very important in keeping that humerus sitting uh, properly within the glenoid fossa of the scapula. And it's the suprascapular nerve from C5 that does that, right? Correct. Okay, what about the infraspinatus? So infraspinatus is the, uh, the larger muscle coming around from the scapula, onto the uh, humerus to help with external rotation. Primarily, uh, it it externally rotates more so uh, when the arm is down by your side. And as you abduct the arm, you get more of a teres minor helping to do the external rotation. So the infraspinatus, it's controlled by the uh, suprascapular nerve as well, and that's C5, C6 uh, territory. How about teres minor that you just brought up? That's the uh, axillary nerve at uh, C5. And it externally rotates the arm and does some of the AD, AD or adduction of the shoulder? Not so much. <laughs> oh, okay. What's it do? It's more an external rotator and, uh, and also helps to center the humeral head and the glenoid fossa as well. Well, then who is doing the adduction? The adduction, yeah, that comes from the uh, subscapularis, which is from the anterior aspect of the scapula and wraps around to the anterior part of the humerus and helps with some internal rotation as well as uh, adduction. So it's involved in the internal rotation and adduction with the subscapularis muscle, and its innervation is the um, upper and lower subscapular nerve, again, coming from C5, C6 area. Correct. So what do patients come into the uh, physio clinic saying is wrong? What, what are their symptoms? What do they say is bothering them with their shoulder? Well, I think it's also important to remember with the rotator cuff that the 
that the rotator cuff does uh, produce movement, of course, with the uh, with the humerus, but it's really important for keeping the humeral head centered in that glenoid fossa. So if one of those muscles is injured, uh, either the tendon, the muscle, or the nerve has been injured, then you don't the biomechanics of the glenohumeral joint will be not working properly. So you can start to have, people may complain of clicking, catching, pain. Uh, there may be pain, you know, in any aspect of the shoulder, anteriorly, laterally, superiorly, posteriorly. Pain with movement, pain at rest. They'll usually complain of some functional type movement as well. Sleeping on the shoulder usually um, is very indicative of some kind of pathology happening in the shoulder itself. They often complain of things like picking up the milk carton, pouring themselves a cup of coffee, shampooing their hair, arms over their head, doing up the bra for women is always uh, a big, a big problem as well. Again, you're bringing things to the table that I would not necessarily think of. You know, um, some of those motions involving uh, doing up a bra. How long does it take to rehabilitate someone with a diagnosed rotator cuff tear, let's say? How long? You know, is it the two weeks of NSAID, six weeks of physio? I mean, that's what I'm used to saying. Yes, and that's what we see a lot of uh, that doctor when people are referred to the clinic for a tear. So it really depends on how large the tear is and how much pain the person is having. Oftentimes, if it's a non-traumatic tear, so it's progressed from a tendinopathy to a tear, there will be some pain, loss of function. With the appropriate physiotherapy, within about three months, you should start to see a change. If there's no change... Whoa, three months? Three months? Three months. We're talking to an audience here who has an attention span of 140 characters. They're a merge doc, squirrel. I mean, three months? That's why we need professionals like you in the healthcare team to address these types of injuries so I can move on to the next patient. Yes, and you know, um, it's interesting you say that because that is certainly a problem that we do encounter because the the clients will come in thinking that their shoulders should be better within six weeks because that's what they've been told. Uh, so you try to re-educate them. You give them the proper tools. You um, help them. You help them continue to um, change how they're how they're using their shoulder and the exercises that they're doing and understand how the healing process is going to take because the shoulder really doesn't heal with the tendons like the rest of the body does. It seems to be its own little world as far as the healing process takes place. Well, you're edumacating us here because I, I think a lot of people would have that common misconception uh, of six weeks. And we want to make sure that we're setting our colleagues up for success and not failure. So by saying six weeks, we're setting inappropriate expectations. And if we said three months and they're better in eight weeks, we all look good. But if we say six weeks and it takes eight weeks, we're starting to look bad. So I really appreciate you saying that. So we got to start talking about a paper here, though, Dagny. What's the paper that we've got to go through from a uh, critical appraisal standpoint? Okay, Dr. Ken, it's Herman's J et al. Does this patient with shoulder pain have rotator cuff disease? The Rational Clinical Examination Systematic Review from JAMA 2013. 
Yeah, and JAM has done a number of these rational clinical exam series, and they're excellent, and I encourage everyone to go check them out because they are really, really well done. Um, we do a PICO when we're going through the uh, critical appraisal. So the P stands for the population. What population were we dealing with in this diagnostic uh, study? We have uh, five studies with a total of 432 patients and 442 shoulders. These patients were referred to a sports medicine or a rheumatology clinic. Yeah, so they, um, they had a few more shoulders than they did patients because some people had bilateral disease. And these were not eMERGE patients. These were patients from orthopedic offices, sports medicine offices, or rheumatology clinics. What type of intervention were they doing to make the diagnosis? They used a pain provocation test strength test, and a composite test, which as physios we call a cluster of tests. A cluster of tests. And what were they comparing it to? They used the operating room, ultrasound, or an MRI. And as we said earlier, most people don't require going to the operating room, so most of these were um, confirmed uh, through ultrasound or MRI. What was the outcome of the study? Outcome was partial or a full tear of the rotator cuff. So that was the primary outcome. Now, uh, for the included, uh, when they looked for studies, they included the following. The study had to have a description of the history, physical, or clinical tests. They had to detail their sensitivity and specificity. They had to use a reference standard with diagnostic criteria that were pre-specified. The presentation of the original data had to be available to be examined. And I thought this was interesting, that the, uh, they did have some language restrictions, and we like to see no language restrictions, but their language restrictions were that at least one of the authors had to be fluent in the language that the article was written in. I thought that was kind of interesting. How about the exclusions? Which studies were they not going to include? All right, so those not included were rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, shoulder instability, labral lesions, fractures, adhesive capsulitis, tumors, complex regional pain syndrome, and any disorders from strokes. So the author's conclusions from this JAMA Rational Clinical Exam systematic review was, quote, because specialists performed all the clinical maneuvers for rotator cuff disease in each of the included studies with no findings evaluated in more than three studies, the generalizability of the results to the non-referred population is unknown. A positive painful arc test resulted and a positive external rotation resistant test results were the most accurate findings for detecting rotator cuff disease. Whereas the presence of a positive lag test, both internally or sorry, externally or internally rotation, result was most accurate for diagnosis of a full thickness rotator cuff tear. End of quote. And so we'll go through some of those actual tests further on. But let's go through our quality checklist because we have a BEAM critical appraisal diagnostic study quality checklist that include six different things. So I'm going to ask the questions, Dagny, if you could give us the answer. Question number one, the diagnostic question is clinically relevant. Yes. Number two, the search for studies was detailed and exhaustive. It sure was. Number three, the methodological qualities of the primary studies were assessed for common forms of diagnostic research bias. Yes. The assessments of the studies were reproducible. They sure were. 
Number five, there was low heterogeneity for estimates of sensitivity or specificity. That we're unsure about. Okay, so we're not too sure about that. Number six, the summary diagnostic accuracy is sufficiently precise to improve upon existing clinical decision-making models. No. Ugh, the answer was no. Okay, so let's dive into the results. What were the key results, Dagny? Okay, so there were five studies with between 30 to 203 shoulders in each study. Prevalence of rotator cuff disease was from 33% to 81%. And so, wow, that's pretty high. The prevalence of disease, of rotator cuff disease, third to 81%. One-third all the way up to 81%. So fairly prevalent in these, um, in these outpatient clinics. So let's go through the tests. The first test was pain provocation tests. And only one of the, of the pain provocation tests that they mentioned actually had a positive likelihood ratio of greater than 2.0. And so we're going to mention that one. But I want people to consider that when we're looking at likelihood ratios from a nerdy EBM standpoint, an evidence-based medicine standpoint, we like to see positive likelihood ratios of 10, 10 or more, not just 2, but 10 or more. So think of that when we go through the actual results. And for negative likelihood ratios to rule out disease, we like to see negative likelihood ratios of 0.1 to really feel strongly that we can rule out the diseases. So think of that when we go through the positive and neg negative likelihood ratios. So this pain provocation test, the one that we're going to get Dagny here to describe, is the painful arc. The painful arc. So can you describe, remember, it's a podcast. Can you describe the painful arc test? Sure. So the patient would be sitting, arms at their side. I am doing that right now. And the uh, therapist, doctor, examiner would take the patient's arm, patient's relaxed, arms at the side, patient holds the arm straight as the examiner passively takes the arm up into abduction all the way up to the patient's head and slowly back down. So Dagny is slowly lifting my arm from the side of my body at my thigh all the way up to see if I have a painful arc between uh, 60 degrees and 120 degrees. So the results for this test was a positive likelihood ratio of 3.7. Remember, that's the best one they had here, 3.7. And the negative likelihood ratio was 0 0.36. Now, when would you consider the study positive? Study is positive if the patient has pain between the 60 and 100 degrees. Uh, so this will indicate some kind of subacromial or rotator cuff disorder. So if Dagny was lifting my arm up and I went, oh, right through that 60 to 120 degrees, that would be the painful arc positive test. Now, they did mention some other studies. One was called the Hawkins test and the NEAR test. You know what those are, right? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah, and they have little diagnostic value, unfortunately. And I don't know if it's because they were named after someone, but I never like the tests that are named after someone. But it's probably because there's no Milne test <laughs> All right, so um, let's move on. How about strength tests? They had three strength tests that they did. One was called the external rotation lag test. Help me out. What's an external rotation lag test? How do we do it? Okay, so patient sitting again, arms bent at 90 degrees at the patient's side. So I'm following Dagny's instructions. I'm sitting down. I've got my arm at my side, and my elbow is bent 90 degrees. And the examiner will passively take the patient's arm out 
as far as it can go. And okay, yep, yep. That's far enough, Dagny, yep. Yes, so there will be pain. There may be pain or the, the uh, patient can't hold their arm there. So a positive test when you're ratcheting my arm out to the side there is if I'm unable to maintain that position of full external rotation with my elbow locked into my uh, beside my body and my hand going out to the side. In this one, the likelihood ratio was 7.2. Not quite at that 10.0 that we're looking at, but this was the best of the bunch, 7.2, with a negative likelihood ratio of 0.57. Now, we've done the external rotation lag test. How about the internal rotation lag test? How do we do that? Okay, so this one is the hand going behind the back. Whoa, whoa gentle there. Okay, I'm not getting arrested, Dagny. <laughs> uh, so examiner, again, passively takes the... Gently. Gently takes the arm behind the back and... Uh, lifts the hand off the back and okay, asks yep. the uh, the patient to hold the arm in that position. And if they say, uncle, is it positive? That's a positive. Okay, I think the real positive test is when the patient is unable to maintain the position. The likelihood ratio for this one, the positive likelihood ratio was 5.6, and the negative likelihood ratio was 0 0.4. All right, the third and last strength test, the drop arm test. How are you going to drop my arm, Dagny? Well, actually, I'm not going to drop your arm, Ken. You are. What a relief. So I would ask the patient to take their arm up to about 90 degrees, hold their arm there, and then slowly lower it back down. So you're looking for pain, weakness, um, or catching, or you know, sort of splinting as the shoulder comes down. So I'm holding my arm straight out by my side, straight off my shoulder, pointing to the wall, and that's complete um, uh, extension of my arm. And then you watch as I try to slowly lower my arm. And if it immediately drops or it's sort of I'm splinting or complaining of pain as it goes down, that's what you would consider as the operator a positive test? That's correct. Okay, so the likelihood ratio for this was 3.3, and the negative likelihood ratio was 0 0.83. Dagny? Thanks very much for helping us walk through those tests. The Rational Clinical Exam Series from JAMA did put together a video, and so for those individuals who want to watch the video and see how these tests are done, I will throw it up on the blog so you can watch it. Don't do it while you're driving, but I will throw that up on the blog so people can uh, find that later. So let's go through some... Um, oh, sorry, uh, Dagny, did you have some other comments that you wanted to make about these tests? Yes, I was just wondering, Ken, if you could throw up a, another article that looks at... A cluster of three tests, a combination of some of these tests, which has a, a good likelihood ratio of uh, rotator cuff tears. So it would be a nice article to read in order to um, uh, assess for a rotator cuff tear. Yeah, it's always nice to give people more information or further reading. And I understand that when you read through this JAMA article, you're like, eh, that's not how we do it. That's not how the physiotherapists do these tests. And I don't even think the names are the same. Is that right? That, that's right, Ken, yes. So the, 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 there were some minor changes in some of these tests. It really, really for as a physiotherapist, we think of clustering some of these tests because none of these tests, as we can see, are great at ruling in or ruling out. But often when you can cluster these tests together, it gives you much more of a diagnostic accuracy. So those are the results. Um, we do know that uh, rotator cuff disease is the most common cause of shoulder pain. 
this study does try to shed some light on the physical exam techniques and tests that can help uh, you identify someone with a rotator cuff uh, disease in the emergency department. You know, there are some limitations to this study. Uh, it was an important question to ask, but what about the external validity to the emergency department itself? None of these five studies, as we talked about earlier, were from the emergency department. They were all patients seen in an outpatient clinic, whether it be orthopedics, rheumatology, or sports medicine. And this creates a, a significant amount of verification or workup or referral bias, and all of those uh, terms can be somewhat interchangeable. You're working these people up, and that's why they're showing up in this clinic, or they're referred to that clinic in the first place. So there's a lot of verification bias. And that probably accounts for the high prevalence. Remember, 33%, up to 81% of these people ruled in for rotator cuff disease, compared to the general population estimates of only about 2 to 3%, all the way up to 15%. Now, this type of bias or referral bias tends to overestimate the sensitivity and underestimate the specificity. So there's a little EBM uh, nugget or pearl in there. So when you see referral bias, think that the sensitivity is going to be overestimated and that it's going to have underestimated specificity. When you looked at all the tests, it was the painful arc test that was the best with the pain provocation test being a likelihood ratio of 3.7, but still not anywhere near that 10.0 that we're looking for. And among the strength test, it was the external rotation lag test, which had a positive likelihood ratio of 7.2. And the internal rotation uh, lag test had a positive likelihood ratio of 5.6 for full thickness tear. The best performing test to rule out rotator cuff disorder was a normal a normal internal rotation lag test, and that had a negative likelihood ratio of 0.04. Now, these are the physical exam techniques which can be learned and easily done if you have a teacher like Dagny. And I mean, if she can show me how to do these tests, you can learn how to do these tests too in the emergency department. And because of the verification bias in the available studies, we're not sure how accurate these tests would be in the emergency department. Okay, Ken. What's the bottom line? <laughs> Am I rambling? Yes, Ken, you are. So the bottom line then, um, I, uh, take an x-ray if you're concerned about a bony injury or involvement, um, conduct an examination that you're confident in performing, and then treat the patient's pain. Oligoanalgesia or lack of pain control in the emergency department continues to be a big problem. And I'm on my soapbox saying, don't be part of the problem, be part of the solution. Make sure you address that person's pain while you're trying to find a diagnosis. And then arrange appropriate follow-up. So Ken, how are you going to apply this clinically? This study here is not really going to change my clinical practice. I mean, with the case scenario you gave, I'll get an x-ray if I'm concerned about a bony injury or involvement. Uh, I'll conduct my typical shoulder exam without some specialized test like the Hawkins test. I'll provide appropriate pain medicine because pain is probably the number one reason why they came in. And I'll arrange for imaging studies depending on my clinical concern and resources, such as an ultrasound or an MRI, because it'll depend on your practice environment. And not everyone has access to 24-hour ultrasound or MRI. And then I'll suggest follow-up with primary care physicians or a specialist like you, Dagny, depending on the local practice patterns. So what do you tell your patients, Ken? 
Well, if I have a patient w- with the condition that you were describing, I, I would say to them, um, it appears that you might have a rotator cuff uh, disorder or disease. I would tell them to uh, rest their arm, apply ice, and take some non-steroidal anti-inflammatories for their pain. And then I'd ask them to follow up with their primary care physician in the next week or so, and considering seeing your friendly neighborhood physio to help them address that. And if it's still sore, I might suggest them getting that advanced imaging studies that we talked about, like an ultrasound or an MRI. So Ken, do you have a Keener contest this week? You know what? I am recording this so early, Dagny. I've done a few shows in the last week, and I haven't got, I haven't posted the previous shows, so nobody's had a chance to actually win the Keener contest because it hasn't been posted. It's been a really busy month, and actually this show is going to go up on May 11th after I've been speaking at the North York EM Update Conference. And I'm going to say in advance here, I had a great time. Um, and at the end of May, I'm heading off to the nation's capital, and that is Ottawa, of course, not Toronto for all our non-Canadian listeners. Yes, I'm going to Ottawa, the capital of Canada. And it's for the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians annual scientific meeting. We have some really cool social media things planned for Ottawa. So watch that Twitter feed for hashtag CAPE14. That's C-A-E-P-14. So, uh, Ken, with our focus on the shoulder this week, I wanted to have a keener question that would be related to the shoulder. Makes sense. So say you are examining the shoulder and find and you find a winged scapula, which is a condition that causes a shoulder blade to protrude from the patient's back. I'm glad you explained what a winged scapula, because I had this picture of like a wing coming out of somebody's back like it was in the X-Men movie. <laughs> what, what is the most common cause of scapular winging? That's the question. Oh, good. I, I thought you were asking me there. Um, <laughs> so, so if you know the answer to the Keener contest on, on what's the most common cause of scapular winging, then send it to me, the sgem at gmail.com, Use Keener in the subject line. And if you're the first one to correctly answer, I will send you a cool skeptical prize. Dagny, you are the first and therefore the best physiotherapist to have appeared on the SGEM. Thank you so much for coming and helping us understand the shoulder anatomy and the various tests that can be performed to diagnose rotator cuff disease. I would like to say, Ken, remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week.